Hello, 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 and welcome back to the More Money Podcast. This is your host, Jessica Morehouse, and this is a solo episode. It's just me this time, and I have not done one of these episodes for a, gosh, very long time, maybe a year, maybe more, I don't know. Um, And I thought it would be a nice thing to do to kick off season 16 of the show to have this special episode where... I talk a little bit about, you know, just a little reflection on last year, maybe some things I'm working on this year, but also most importantly, and this is probably why you're going to be listening to this episode, answering some of your questions. So I sent out uh, an email to my email list. I also put this on Instagram and uh, I got a variety of questions. I said, ask me literally anything and I will answer them in this podcast and that is exactly what I'm going to do. And I have a, like, it is a jumble of questions. Like, I'm like, it is everywhere. So we're going to get into it. And I'm excited about that. But uh, yeah, to, to start things, let me share a little bit uh, about me, a little life update. It has been a very interesting um, start start to 2023, if I'm honest. Um, so I think I share this on my Instagram, but also uh, to if you're an email list subscriber, also on my email list. Um, I was set to, you know, finish season uh, 15 of the podcast uh, end of December and then head on over to Vancouver for Christmas with my family. And of course, guess what happens? This girl finally, finally, Gets the Rona, got some COVID, um, and hey, you know, I'm not mad at it because it was bound to happen. I've been evading it for, I mean, three years, basically, and so it was bound to happen. So that unfortunately meant that I had to, well, uh, I had to change my flights, change my plans. I didn't make it to Vancouver until um, New Year's Eve, and it was a weird Christmas, if I'm going to be honest. It was definitely a weird Christmas, just uh, just with the, you know, basically, I was in like Christmas mode, and everyone was ready to get back to work and start the new year. So I felt like I was a few weeks delayed um, starting 2023, which never is a good feeling, right? You want to, I don't know, I like starting the year like, all right, let's do this. I've got, you know, my my goals set. Let's, you know, get off to the races. And yeah, wasn't like that. We returned, uh, I think, after January 10th to uh, Toronto home. And it, yeah, I just felt like things were like off. Everything was off and it really was weird. But, uh, you know, things are still looking up, though. But I don't know about you if you have this. Um, I get this every year, and it was definitely delayed a few weeks. But at the end of every year, when there is that weird, quiet period before, between, like, Christmas and New Year's, and even a, a few days after New Year's, I get really low. I don't know about you, but I always get really low, probably because... You know, I just realized another year has passed <laughs> and, you know, maybe taking a look at my goals, a lot of goals I didn't uh, achieve and feel kind of, you know, hard on myself, which I really shouldn't be, but I can't help it. It just happens. And just, yeah, I just feel like kind of like, huh, you know, and uh, I also, you know, just the normal existential crisis of what am I doing here? What's the point of life? And why are we on this planet? You know, normal stuff that happens every single year. Um, so for me, I have actually been spending uh, the the bulk of January really just reflecting and, you know, called my therapist again to get a little tune up and um, I have been reading some really great, interesting, thoughtful books. And I'm honestly changing or I'm hoping to change my mindset going into this year. And what I mean by that is 
I've been thinking a lot about why, well, yeah, why am I doing all of this? Um, but also specifically, like, what, what am I working so hard towards? Like, yeah, I set goals every single year. And, you know, I achieve a good amount of them, but not all of them. I, I don't think there's ever been a year where I've achieved every single thing on my list. Um, but I just had a moment where I'm like, what am I doing? What am I running towards or running from maybe? And it made me realize some internal things that I need to actually work through for like, why do I feel like I need to be at a certain level of success or a certain level of wealth? I mean, it doesn't help that me being in this personal finance sphere, you are constantly being compared to other people and you constantly compare yourself to others about, you know, they have this and I don't have that. And why don't you have this? They have that. Um, And it just made me think about, okay, as I get older, turning 37 this year, what do I actually really want in life? Um, Because I don't think it's the same as what I wanted in my 20s. And so trying to just reframe really what the heck I want, what I want my life to look like. And honestly, it's less to do about achieving things or accolades or things that, you know, the the shiny object that we're all trying to get for some reason, because I should know better by now talking to hundreds of people over the past seven years on this podcast who have achieved some amazing things, the shiny object, the trophy, the title, whatever it is, is not the thing. I know so many people who you would think they have it all, they must be so happy, and they're not, or they still have other struggles outside of that, or they achieve that thing. And then it's not, you know, then what, (laughs) you know, you feel good for a minute, but you can't just coast on that amazing feeling of achieving whatever you want to achieve forever. It dissipates. And then you're left with whatever you were running from. So that's some internal stuff that I'm working through that I hope to continue to work through and also just research and learn more about and integrate into the podcast. Really, I think as much as I love talking about the practical things we can all do to improve our finances and build wealth, I definitely want to have more conversations about kind of the deeper stuff, um, because that is the stuff that's going to make real lasting change and actually motivate you to to do some of those uh, practical things. It's not just about hustle, work harder, you're lazy, or do this, don't do that. It's not black and white, and uh, it's a little bit more complex than that. So that's what I've been going through. That's how I started my 2023. So that's a lot of fun. Um, but some other kind of things to to share with you. So number one, one other thing that I really worked hard, it took me literally a whole year to do, which is crazy when you think about it. Uh, finally, I have finally updated all of my budget spreadsheets. So I've had these budget spreadsheets, I developed them many moons ago, I can't remember what year. But I think I started offering them first as just a there's just one as a free download on my website, probably like five years ago, I can't remember. And then um, I started developing a bunch of others because I kept on getting emails. Hey, do you have one for self-employed couples? Do you have one where we're a couple and one person has a self-employed business and I'm an employee? All these different scenarios. And so I have created a bunch of spreadsheets for, I swear, any kind of scenario that I could think of. And they are finally all done, upgraded, better than ever. Lots more customization and just 
easier to use. And I use one of them myself. I actually use the one for a self-employed and employed couple. I'm the employee um, because I have a corporation and I'm the employee of my corporation, pay myself a salary, and then my husband is self-employed. So I use it myself, <laughs> but they are now available on my website at jessicamorehouse.com slash shop. So if you want to take a look, you can uh, check that out. There's also even a cool little quiz that you can take um, where you can put in your information, answer a few questions, and it will tell you what is the uh, spreadsheet that is the best fit for you. So make sure to check that uh, out. And also there's video tutorials for every single spreadsheet. So before you uh, download, buy, you can watch the whole walkthrough to really see what you're going to get. Um, they're also all available on my YouTube channel. And speaking of, that's another thing that I'm going to be really focusing on hard on in 2023 is my YouTube channel. So I set a goal for myself um, at the end of the year. I can't remember if I shared this on the podcast. Maybe I did. I can't remember. But um, at the like November, December of 2022, I actually was participating in this really cool program called, um, oh gosh, what was it? I think it was called just the YouTube Accelerator. It was put on by this organization called Concept in collaboration with uh, YouTube. And I applied because um, someone reached out to me to say, you should apply for this. And uh, I applied and then I got in and it was me and a bunch of other Canadian uh, content creators. Um, and it was just to basically teach us how to do how to, how to really optimize YouTube. Because even though I know some things, gosh, there was a lot I didn't know and a lot I got wrong was doing like, oh, now I look back, I'm like, cringe. Um, so really excited to focus on YouTube this year, as well as a podcast. Don't worry, nothing's going to change with the podcast. But I'm also going to really double down on uh, YouTube because I realize I really like it. And also, it is more me just, you know, I could it's a solo episode kind of every time where I can kind of explore a specific topic or answer a specific question or show you how to do something. Um, so make sure to check that out youtube.com. Uh, Actually, I don't know if it's like slash Jessica Morehouse. You can just Google Jessica Morehouse YouTube. It'll be in there. Or no, it's jessicamorehouse.com slash YouTube. That's where you can get directed right there. But I think I'm the only Jessica Morehouse on YouTube uh, that I know of that I found. So you can check me out there. But my goal that I set at the beginning of this year is to put out at least one video every single week. So far, I've done that. So that means I'm going to be putting out at the minimum, 52 uh, videos this year, which is a lot because I love this podcast, but it is a well-oiled machine. I've got some people to help me with it. My, you know, podcast editor and my sister who uh, does some uh, of the podcast show notes and a bunch of other things to help me. It is it's pretty easy to do this podcast now, but it also it's like, you know, it's almost eight years old. So yeah, it should be. YouTube is another beast. It is... It's a lot of work, man. It is a lot of work to put together those videos. Um, but I'm excited. So um, make sure to subscribe, check it out. Um, and yeah, see see how things grow. We're, we're, we're hoping to, to keep on increasing our subscribers. And by we, I mean me. I don't know why I said we. It's just me. Um, but yeah, you can uh, check that out. I'm excited about that. But I feel like those are kind of it's such a, we're so early into the year, there's not a lot I can really share besides some of those things that I just shared with you. So I feel like now is probably a good point where I can shift and start answering some of the questions that I got because, gosh, I've been getting more questions than ever because it's a weird time. 2022 was rough for a lot of us. And, you know, we're 
I think a lot of people are concerned about what's happening this year. We keep on hearing the word recession, layoffs, inflation, high interest rates. You know, we've got some concerns and we've got some questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So I've got a bunch that were submitted. Some are very specific. Some are a bit more general. So I'm just going to work my way through as many as I can um, and see where we end up. Um, I'm going to answer. I'm going to start off with some easy ones (laughs) because you know, let's just start off with some easy ones. I asked people to submit questions that were either about like general money questions or personal questions. And I only got like two sort of personal questions. Like, I guess you guys just don't really care. And that's fine. That is totally fine. (laughs) But I thought I'd get a little bit more personal questions. But, uh, you know, I don't share a lot about my personal life. So maybe it's hard to ask me a question when you don't even know where to start. But I mean, to be fair, there's just nothing much to share. Like, it's not a crazy life I'm living over here. It's very, it's very boring. But hey, who cares? Um, Anyways, so let's start off with some softballs for me. One question that I actually really like this question, how do you feel about your money? And I feel like that's a question I ask like people. And I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. So thanks for that question. Um... In general, I will say I feel really good about my money. And I can say that confidently because for pretty much all of my 20s, I felt terrible about it. (laughs) I felt bad because I was definitely stuck in that mode of comparing myself to others and some of the benchmarks they were able to meet. And I wasn't. I was not earning much throughout my 20s. High cost of living. And I just didn't, you know, I felt like that kind of life checklist were given by our parents, you know, buy a house, start a family, get married, da, 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 da. I wasn't doing any of that. Um, and I felt kind of, you know, crappy about that, that it, it was taking me longer than my parents. Now we know that it's because, you know, everything was kind of stacked against us. And it's not, it's not easy to reach all of those um, goals and, and, and uh, you know, benchmarks. But I, yeah, had, I think, a kind of not healthy relationship with money. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to live really frugally and earn more and, you know, just do more. And I definitely burnt myself out a few times. Um, But now that I'm in my, can I still say my mid-30s, I'm 36? Eh, Why not? Um, I feel really good. And I think part of it is that money is something that you can change how it affects your life. Um, You know, I've done a lot of research about, you know, psychology and behavior when it comes to money. And I think that's really important because it it affirms some things that you're like, oh, I thought that, but I wasn't sure if it was just me. But no, like money is complex and we all have our different kind of, yeah, relationships with money. That luckily you can change and it can evolve over time. And so I've worked really hard over the past few years to try to have a healthier, better relationship with money. And so part of that is like not putting so much pressure on myself for achieving some of these crazy things that you see online. Yeah, I don't, I didn't reach million dollar status by 30. Sorry, I didn't do that. And you know what? It actually doesn't matter. That's cool that other people can do that. I wasn't able to do that. That shouldn't have any relevance because that doesn't mean that I'm not 
happy and I didn't achieve some other things that were important to me. So I've really learned to focus more on me and what I want and what makes me feel good. And what makes me feel good is making my own plan, having my own budget, tracking my my number so we know where everything is. And when things shift like, hey, interest rates are up and we have a variable rate mortgage and our mortgage is more expensive, we can make a plan for that. We can shift some things around. Me and my husband can have a conversation about, okay, what's our strategy? And it just makes you feel more empowered and more in control. So to answer your question, I feel really good about my money right now. All right. So another question sort of along the same lines, and I kind of like this. uh, What do you most like to spend your money on? Um, Well, I do know the answer because I track my spending so I know where every dollar goes. And it looks like I love to spend my money on food. (laughs) I love food. It makes me happy going to a restaurant or doing takeout. And that is what brings me instant joy is food or things for my kitchen. One of the things that I always dreamed of and I bought myself, it was on sale. Um, Last year when I bought my house was a KitchenAid mixer because I always wanted to be, I just, I always wanted it. I'm a big fan of British Bake Off. And so I wanted to get the ones that they, you know, that you see on that show all the time. And yeah, I love buying kitchen appliances and kitchen cookbooks and food. That is where, that was. that's what brings me joy. Sometimes I like buying makeup, but honestly, like I don't wear makeup unless I have to be on TV or do some speaking or do social media where my face is there. Otherwise, it's there's no makeup going on. So it's not really a thing that I just like love to do. It's something it's more like I have to do. And clothes I just don't care about. Honestly, I just I love to look good when the time, you know, I when I have to, but in general, I'd rather be comfortable. So sweatpants it is and pajamas, and that's what I'm doing. So food is the answer to that question. All right, here's a really good uh, question. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm able to shed some light, not only because I have worked with a number of clients over the years as a financial counselor, but also because I've been in a relationship uh, for a very long time. It's come into 15 or 16 years. It's going to be our 10-year wedding anniversary this spring anyway. Um, but the question is, what is the best way to initiate a conversation about money? Uh, and maybe that could be for your partner or your friend. Um, those are very different scenarios. Um, it's never easy, number one. <laughs> so I always kind of feel like instead of building it up in your head to have this big formal conversation about money, because I, I certainly did not do that. Um, you can bring up money in natural ways and just casual conversation. Like basically you can bring up a scenario and ask your friend or your partner, what are your thoughts on this? Or uh, you can talk about yourself like, hey, FYI, um, I was you know, thinking about paying off my uh, credit card or something like, I don't know. Be like, have you ever had an experience like that? Or do you have some advice for that? If you bring it up kind of slowly in bits and pieces, then when you do have maybe a more kind of longer, deeper conversation about money. It won't necessarily seem totally out of the blue because you've never talked about money before. So I always think bringing up in like little bits is easy. But then also when you do have that big conversation, the thing that I learned that I was not good at at the beginning because I talk about money all the time, I think I had my like financial counselor hat on or educator hat on when I had some big conversations with my husband once we got married. And that's not helpful because then it feels like you're the teacher and they're the student. No one wants to feel like that kind of power dynamic. You want to come at it from a place of 
you two are equals. You are initiating the conversation. I think also maybe having an agenda is kind of good, like a few questions or things that you definitely want to touch on. But the job for you is really to ask some questions, actually listen. Don't just want to stop them so you can share your advice or your opinion or this is what I do. Don't come at it from the place that you think you're right and they're wrong. Just remember, you both are coming from so different situations. You have learned about money, experienced money in probably different ways. So it's important to understand where your partner or your friend is coming from and be open. Non-judgmental is the best thing. And really the best way to not be judgmental is sometimes just not sharing your opinion if it's just not necessary. Like it's 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 tricky when especially you are more, you know, financially literate, maybe you have more experience. You see, oh my gosh, if they just did this, this would help them so much. Remember, that is not your role. It's really about creating that safe space where they can trust you to share. And then over time, as you build that trust, you can have um, more conversations about maybe solutions. But again, they have to be open to it. And again, it depends on the situation. If it's just a friend, I mean, you've got to wait for them to ask for advice. Don't be that annoying friend that's like, oh, if you just did it this way, it would be great. Believe me, I have done that. And sometimes I still catch myself doing that. No one likes that. So don't do it. Um, but when it's your partner, if it's their personal money, really respect that. But if it's something to do with you together, like you're saving for a trip together and you know, you're trying to figure out how should we do that? Should we open up a joint checking account or, or whatever? Then again, still come from that place of non-judgment and understanding where they're coming from and really just have that, you know, not uh, just like make it so they feel really safe sharing with you. No one wants to feel judged or feel like they're the one in the wrong or they're doing it wrong. No one wants to feel like that. And that's going to just make them shut down and end the conversation. So I'd say really comment from a place of openness, kindness, honesty, uh, but not brutal honesty, <laughs> and just creating that safe space so they feel comfortable with you because then you can, you know, easily have more conversations down the road. Now, along the same lines, I've got a question about um, how to nicely get your partner to be better with their money and be a saver. So this is when you recognize maybe some of the not so good money behaviors your partner has. How can you help them change that? Well, first, they have to want to change that for themselves. And so, again, that's why open dialogue where there's no judgment and just understanding um, really comes in. But I think, especially when it comes to like your joint money, having conversations focused on what our values are, our shared values, hopefully, and also what are our goals. So instead of being like, you should save more, which sounds judgmental, Talk about it in the way of like, hey, so I was looking at our budget. Maybe we could look at it together and have a conversation with how our spending and always kind of don't, you know, say your spending habits. Just be like ours. Like say, you know, because you're not perfect. Maybe it's also a bit of you. Um, how our spending decisions are really kind of affecting um, the timeline for, you know, we want to reach some of these financial goals like that trip or our down payment. Maybe we can talk about you know, what we can change in the future so we can really hit those marks. Always put it in like more of a positive lens, like, hey, what can we do a bit differently moving forward so we can reach those things that we talked about that really got us excited? Instead of saying, you spend too much, your expenses are too high, blah, 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 blah. Never good if you can frame it and really always bring it back to our goals and what we want to achieve and our values and 
you know, the things that get us excited for life. That is, I found that to be more effective than, yeah, just berating my partner about what they spent. But then also, I think that's why it's important for both of you. I mean, again, this depends on every couple, but what I found helpful for me and my husband is to have our joint, you know, finances or joint goals and stuff like that. And then have our own personal money where, again, we still, you know, make sure we abide by a budget and try to not to go over. But basically, he can do whatever he wants with that personal money. I can do whatever I want with my personal money. And then we cannot judge each other for our choices. So I won't judge him if he wants to spend a ton of money on coffee. And he won't judge me for spending a lot of money on, I don't know, makeup or something like that. Um, it's it's nice to have that separation and still feel like an individual. And also just to be like, hey, it's my money. I can do what I want. That's That's what's helped me and my husband for a number of years. All right. So I've got more of a scenario question. It's probably a specific question this person has, but they kind of made it more general for me to answer. You received an inheritance. You have no debt outside your mortgage. What now? Uh, I've actually had a few friends that have been in that situation. And it sounds, you know, when you hear about it, you're like, oh, wow, you got an inheritance. That's so awesome. It's actually really daunting and can cause a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of pressure to do the right thing because it's this windfall that you may never get again. You want to make the right choice. Um, So first and foremost, it really comes down to taking a look at what's going on in your current financial situation. Where's the money going? What are some areas that maybe we should focus on? And what are, again, our goals? What do we want to do? So in this scenario, you have no debt outside of your mortgage. So you don't need to, you know, put some money on your credit card, your line of credit, you just have your mortgage. Um, So really, it sounds like, okay, you've got your mortgage, um, you've got, you know, likely your retiring or your investing for retirement. Do you have any other financial goals? Um, You know, maybe you can top up your travel fund if you have a trip coming up or, you know, maybe you have a family or you have some kids, maybe you can, you know, use some of that money for their RESPs. Um, I, I don't know, it really comes down to, What are your goals and what are their priorities? So when you write down all of your different goals, and we actually talk about this in my Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians course, when you outline all of your different saving and investing goals, you also need to prioritize them. Which one is number one priority, number two, three, four? Because then when you are in a situation where you do get an inheritance or a bonus or even a tax refund, and you're like, gosh, what do I do with this money? You can take a look at that list and be like, well, my number one priority actually above everything else is retirement. So I'm going to put it into my RRSP or my TFSA. Um, or maybe, you know, because, you know, maybe you have a variable rate like me in the, the mortgage and, you know, um, using some of that inheritance money to put down on your mortgage could really ease your cash flow because your payments went uh, right up. So that might be, you know, something to look at as well. But honestly, if you still feel like really overwhelmed, that is where I highly recommend working with a fee-only financial planner. They can take a look at your entire financial picture. They can have that conversation with you because sometimes it's nice talking to a third party about what you want in life and your goals, and they can help you outline all of that for you. So that's, that's kind of what I would suggest for that. All right, next question. Investing as someone who has a defined benefit pension Question mark. Um, I get questions like this uh, pretty much all the time. Um, and hey, if you've got a DB pension, good for you. Those are those are nice and they're rare. Um, I don't know too many people who have them besides people who work for the government or healthcare. Um, and so, I think one kind of misconception is that if you have a defined benefit pension, 
then you're good. You don't need to invest. Your retirement is set. But it's actually really important to see how much will you potentially get um, from that pension when you decide to retire. Again, it depends on so many variables such as what age you're actually going to retire and uh, that particular pension and all that kind of stuff. But you can find all that information through your employer. Um, But the really important thing to keep in mind is it may not actually be enough to afford you the lifestyle that you want in retirement. Um, And so it is likely uh, really important for you to invest in your own. But I feel like even if it does cover all the things that you can think of when you're retired, I still think you should be investing. Um, And this here's why. Okay, so number one, um, there's a term called golden handcuffs. And that's a term basically, if you have defined benefit pension from your work, It's amazing to have that pension, but also feel kind of locked in um, because if you leave, then you no longer get the amount that you would if you were to participate in that pension until retirement. So that's where the golden handcuffs kind of comes in. It's like it's it's a great benefit, but also you feel like you can't leave. And I know a lot of people stay in careers that they don't love because of this pension, which is not worth it. I don't think there's other ways to build wealth. Um, Don't feel stuck in a career for like the next 20 or 30 years just because of this pension. Very well, you can find another job with a pension or again, just invest on your own through a TFSA or RSP or a mix of both um, to afford the retirement that you want. But let's say you're happy with your job. You're going to get that pension, that full pension, which is great. Here's why I think you should still invest on your own. Um, first, this may, you know, building up your savings on your own or your investment portfolio and, and that wealth on your own just gives you options. It gives you the option to maybe retire early and take a lower pension because you're retiring maybe 10 years um, earlier than, um, you know, is is kind of the, the average. Um, but also, what if you want, you have may, maybe other goals besides just retirement. You can use your RSP and your TFSA for uh, other goals, such as your RSP. You can use it for the you know first-time home buyer's plan or the lifelong learning plan. Um, your TFSA, you can do whatever the heck you want with that money. And so really think outside of the box in terms of like, what does investing mean? Investing doesn't always mean just retirement. It means building wealth to use that money for some future goal, which could be retirement or something totally different. So if you have a defined benefit pension, absolutely invest on your own. It gives you options. It gives you flexibility. The next question is a very specific uh, question, especially for us Canadians. It's asking, how does the interim Canada Dental benefit work? And so if you're unaware of this, let me uh, share a little bit of info about it. Uh, I'm actually just on the government's website right now. So the interim Canada Dental benefit is uh, to help lower dental costs for families that earn less than $90,000 per year. So uh, parents and guardians can apply for this benefit for their child, and the child has to be under 12 years old and does not have any access to a private dental insurance plan. Now, depending on your you know, adjusted family net income, um, a tax-free payment of $260, $390, or $650 is available for each eligible child. And this interim dental benefit is only available for two periods. Um, and you can get a maximum of two payments for each eligible child. And so the first benefit period is for children under 12 as of December 1st, 2022, who receive dental care between October 1st, uh, 2022 and June 30th, 2023. 
The second period is from July 1st, 2023 to June 30th, 2024. Now, to see if you were eligible, there's actually a great little eligibility checklist on the uh, Canada.ca website. So honestly, if you just Google interim Canada dental benefit, it'll pop right up and you can kind of take a look at this checklist to see if you are eligible to take advantage of this benefit. Now, speaking of uh, government and benefits, though this isn't really a benefit, um, I have been getting a lot of questions about this new tax-free first home savings account, which I think people are using the acronym FHSA. It is the worst name. It is too long. It is dumb. I'm not a big fan of it. There's some great, I mean, it's it's great that it's going to happen, but I wish they just, I don't know, did something better instead of make another account that is super confusing for people. Like just like up the TFSA or RSP limit. I don't know, do something different, but hey, it's the government and I am not involved in that. It is what it is, but I can explain how the FHSA works. So it does not exist yet. I think a lot of people are getting confused. It does not exist in Canada yet. Um, it is set to be um, launched in the spring, specifically April 1st. Uh, but I think the the bill still has to be passed, but it's likely going to be passed. And so I will absolutely be making a video about it um, when that happens, because you never know, maybe they're going to change something. Um, but if they don't, this is what they've proposed for what you're going to get, what the the basics are and your eligibility and all that kind of stuff. So basically how it works is it's going to help first-time home buyers to save uh, $40,000 tax-free. So similar to an RRSP, uh, whenever you make a contribution to your FHSA, that contribution is tax-deductible. Also similar to a TFSA, any income such as, um, you know, interest or dividends that you earn or capital gains that you earn in your FHSA, that is tax-free if you make a withdrawal. So if you put, you know, $10,000 in there and then it grows to $12,000, you make a withdrawal of all of the money in that account, no taxes, tax-free. Now, in order to be eligible, you have to be a Canadian resident, you have to be 18 years old or older, and of course, have to be a first-time home buyer. Um, also, some extra things to take note of. So the account can stay open for 15 years or until the end of the year you turn 71 or at the end of the year following the year in which you make a qualifying withdrawal from your FHSA for the first home purchase whichever comes first. That is a mouthful and I don't like it. All right, some other important things to take note of. So you can contribute a total of $40,000 to your FHSA. That is your lifetime contribution limit. However, you are only allowed to contribute $8,000 annually. So that's fun to keep track of. Um, but any unused contribution room can carry forward to the following year up to a maximum of $8,000. Now you may be wondering, hey, what if I contribute to this account and then I actually don't buy a home? Am I screwed? Because like that's one of the, the nice things about using your RSP and the first time home buyers plan. You can decide easily if you want to use the money that's in your RSP for that plan or not. You can change your mind and don't have to do anything, right? But for this, it's like you're kind of making the decision. This money is for my home purchase because that is what the account is for, right? So if you're in a situation where you've been contributing to your FHSA and then you don't want to buy a home anymore, what can you do? The good news is you have some options. So um, really kind of the best option would be to 
transfer that money to your RRSP or RIF. And you can do this on a non-taxable basis. So if you make that transfer, you don't get dinged taxes. The only way you will uh, be subject to taxes is if instead of transferring that money, you just make a withdrawal. Then obviously you have to pay taxes on that money. Basically the exact same rules that apply when you have an RRSP and you want to make a withdrawal from that RRSP. So those are the kind of main points about the FHSA. But again, it will uh, launch April 1st and um, I will definitely make a video all about it on my YouTube channel. Okay, I've got one very specific question, but you never know. Maybe you have the same question. Should I buy back into my work's pension after my maternity leave? Um, My employer does match my contributions. Or should I keep my money and invest it instead into my TFSA? So, well, first, I guess it, it, it depends on... It always depends, doesn't it? Um, you know, what is this money for? Are you are you okay for it being locked in into your pension and not having access to that money until retirement? Or do you, do you want to invest in your TFSA for a specific purpose? Maybe you just want to have that money a little bit more accessible. Maybe you want to take it out in the near future. But uh, let's say, no, you're, you're cool. You want the money just to be for retirement. In my mind, if I were in that situation, yeah, I would buy back into my pension so I can, you know, eventually just make up that, that lost time because of the employer match. Um, you are earning free money. That is a, you know, let's pretend it's a dollar for dollar match. That is 100% uh, return on your contribution. So to me, that makes the most logical sense. But again, it really comes down to, did you want to invest in your TFSA for a different purpose? Um, or maybe you want to invest in you know, totally different securities than you can, you know, in your pension, because your pension is obviously very strict. And again, it depends on if it's a defined contribution or defined benefit pension, what it's invested in. So, you know, a few things you need to ask yourself. But in general, buying back into that pension to get that employer match could um, be a good decision. All right, I've got another question that seems pretty specific, but uh, let's let's see where this goes. So I've got $235,000 sitting in a savings account. Should I save for a house or invest? Well, um, first off, I feel like whenever I get these questions, um, I feel like most people are, are really looking like, should I do this or this? Why does it have to be either? Why can't it be both? Why can't you use some of it for a house and some of it to invest for your future? I think you could probably do both. That's a good chunk of change depending on where you live and the cost of housing and things like that. But let's pretend, well, first, first, what I would suggest is Go back to that list that I told you to make and, you know, look at your goals and your priorities and see what is your priority. Is your priority to buy a house, especially now, you know, housing is going a bit down here in Canada. Maybe this is a good opportunity. Then maybe you want to use that home on, you know, buying that house, that down payment and closing costs and and all that kind of stuff. Um, And if that is the case, then you're going to want to keep that money in your savings account. You don't want to invest it because it could decrease in value if the stock market continues to go down. So um, if that's the case, keep it in cash and then buy your house. Um, But maybe this this house idea is really just, I don't know if I want to buy a house. I'm just thinking about it, but I'm not really serious about it. If you don't know, invest that money. I mean, there's only a few savings accounts I know of that are um, offering interest that is above 3%. So if you still want something conservative, you can look for a GIC. There are some GICs that have some decent interest rates right now. So you're still keeping it, you know, relatively liquid, depending on what kind of GIC, you may have to pay a penalty or things like that. But 
Again, you could earn a little bit more than a savings account. Um, or if you're like, no, I I, I want to take on some risk and I'm, I'm okay with the ups and downs and invest it. But again, when you're making a decision on what security or what product I'm going to buy with this money, it always comes down to what is this money going to be for? If you invest in something high risk, like a portfolio of 90% stocks and 10% bonds or 100% stocks, well, there's going to be a lot more volatility. And really, that portfolio only makes sense for someone who has a high risk tolerance and has the time to uh, manage those ups and downs of the market. So you can just let those waves ride out and wait for that recovery of the stock market. Um, but if you're like, no, I actually <laughs> I, I don't have the risk tolerance for that. And oh, no, I don't want to invest that money and regret um, investing it because now I do I do want to buy a house. Now I am really serious uh, with it. And then you see, oh, your you know, portfolio is actually only worth $200,000. You lost $35,000 in the market. Would you kick yourself? So that's kind of my answer to that. You can do one or the other, or you can do both. Maybe put, you know, set some of it aside in your savings account or in some GICs for a future home purchase, and then put some of it aside in your RSP or TVSA to invest for your future. Okay, one question um, that is pretty specific, but uh, I love it. Would love to hear your opinion on transferring funds from a TFSA to an RRSP to lower taxes. So first, let me explain how that would logistically happen. So you can't actually make a TFSA to RSP securities transfer. Um, you actually have to sell the securities inside your TFSA, and then you've got cash in your TFSA, and then you would transfer that cash to your RRSP. And then once it's inside your RRSP, you would use that cash to buy the securities. You can do a TFSA to TFSA securities transfer or RSP to RSP securities transfer. For example, I did something similar when I had a discount brokerage uh, account with uh, TD Direct Investing at an RRSP, and I wanted to move those securities over to Questrade. So I did a plan-to-plan -plan transfer with uh, that account and kept those securities. But you can't do that if you're moving uh, securities from a TFSA to an RRSP. So just so you know how that works. But the question is, you know, what's my opinion? Should you do that to lower your taxes? Well, Number one, and I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, when it comes to investing, taxes are a secondary consideration. They should not be the front focus. Too many people I've seen have made really dumb decisions with their money because they're so focused on lowering their taxes instead of actually answering some really important questions about, well, what what are we doing with our investments? Is that decision counterintuitive to your investment plan and all these other factors? So first off, you absolutely can do this, your TFSA to your RRSP. But the first thing that you should actually be mindful of is if you withdraw money from your TFSA, let's say it's $10,000 and you want to move that money to your RRSP. Well, because an RRSP is not a tax-free account like a TFSA, it is a tax-deferred account, which means, yes, you get that tax deduction on that contribution, which is great, but when in the future you want to pull out that money, you pay tax. You pay tax at your full marginal tax rate. So an RSP only makes sense if you truly believe that right now you're in a high tax bracket, but in retirement, you're going to be in a significantly lower tax bracket. If you're in the exact same tax bracket now and then in retirement, it doesn't make sense. You're going to be paying more tax than if you were to just keep that money to grow in your TFSA tax free. 
The other thing to consider besides, you know, how much you'll end up with after you transfer that money in your RSP and then make a withdrawal in the future and have to pay taxes on that money is, well, what you're giving up by putting that money into your RSP. Once it's in that RSP, it's kind of stuck there. Of course, yeah, you can make withdrawal, but there's some things to uh, deter you from doing that. For example, if you make uh, an early withdrawal from your RSP, you do get a withholding tax, so you pay tax on that money that you withdraw, but also you lose that RSP room forever. With the TFSA, it's so much more flexible and easy to use. You can contribute money. You can withdraw money. Of course, you've got to keep uh, in check with your contributions and withdrawals to make sure you don't accidentally over-contribute, but it's very flexible. You are not taxed when you make a withdrawal, and you get that room back the next year. So if you make a withdrawal of $10,000 in 2022, you get that $10,000 contribution room back in 2023, plus the uh, TFSA dollar limit for that year, which is $6,500. With an RSP, sorry, you make a withdrawal, you never get that room back uh, ever again. So you are kind of stuck. It's, it's very much more strict in an RSP. You get a lot more flexibility in your TFSA. So I think when you're considering doing this, you really need to think about more than just the taxes. Also, are you cool just locking up your money uh, inside that RRSP. But um, there's so many different variables when it comes to something like this. And I don't know uh, whoever submitted this question what your tax situation is, but highly recommend talking to your tax accountant, do some uh, scenarios or even a a financial planner who can do some uh, tax scenarios for you to see if it makes sense. But in my personal opinion, for most people, this probably doesn't make sense. And for me, I love a TFSA because I love the idea of building up that TFSA. So it's a really big, chunky amount in retirement. And then I can withdraw that money. It doesn't affect my marginal tax rate or my tax bracket. And I don't pay tax on any of those withdrawals. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So that's, that's my opinion on that. All right. And the last question I'm going to answer is, how do you recover from a bad real estate decision. Well, it kind of depends on what real estate situation we're talking about. Is this a rental property that you bought to, you know, build equity and get some cash flow? Or is this your principal residence? Definitely depends. But I guess no matter what it is, um, you need to, yeah, kind of figure out, well, what what's what's the problem here? Let's talk about rental properties first. Now, I don't own a rental property, uh, but I have had uh, a number of guests on the show that have uh, talked about it. So make sure to check some of those episodes out. Um, for me, I like I like the idea of owning a, a rental property maybe one day. I don't know if this will actually ever happen because it does seem very high risk. And why I say it's high risk is because you typically have to put quite a bit of your own personal capital into this investment. Whereas if you want to start investing in the stock market, buy some ETFs, you can start with like a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars. You know, you don't have to put that much money on the line. Whereas for real estate, you know, property, you're you're going to be putting tens, uh, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on on the line. And so if you bought a property that, you know, you thought, oh, this is going to not only, you know, uh, increase in value because, you know, uh, real estate, uh, you know, uh, rates are, are up, it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, and then I'm going to try to cash flow it and then you buy it and then interest rates increase and you can't find tenants. And also you realize that there's a, a bunch of things that you need to fix that weren't in maybe the initial home inspection. I mean, these things happen all the time 
time. These are real risks um, that you can experience. And I guess really the same can kind of be for for buying a principal residence. You buy, you know, a very expensive home, but you're like, oh, everything's, you know, going up. This is just how much, uh, you know, homes are. And then you get in and then you have a variable rate, you know, mortgage and then your your mortgage payments go significantly up, um, and meaning that maybe you have to cut back elsewhere. Or maybe there's nowhere else to cut back. And so you're really feeling the pinch. And then, yeah, maybe the roof needs done or something. All these things can happen and it can be very expensive and costly. And so really, ultimately, you need to figure out, is there a way that I can, you know, make these home improvements that I need to in order to be able to leave, live in this home or find tenants? Can I afford this? Can I afford to take out a loan and then also afford to make those payments so I can pay back what I borrow? Um, and, you know, is it, you know, can I cash flow this rental property? Can I find tenants once all that's done and actually pay all of my expenses and hopefully have a profit? Um, or, you know, or if you're living in the residence, can I afford, you know, these renov- renovations and fixes so I can live in this house and also make my mortgage payments and all my other, uh, you know, necessities? Now, if, if ultimately the answer is no, I can't afford all this. I mean, your options are to to borrow and get further into debt, which isn't a really good long-term solution. That's a short-term solution. Uh, earn more income elsewhere so you can uh, afford all the that, that kind of shortfall. Or, um, you know, we can find, of course, if you own your own residence, you can find a roommate or some way to make some extra income. Um, if it's, you know, again, if it's a rental property, you know, you can find some tenants and you're kind of limited in terms of how much you can charge for rent. But yeah, you've, you've got kind of limited options. Um, and ultimately, you may be in a situation where you have to sell at a loss. And that's ne- never a fun situation to be in. But what I will say is, you know what happens? And it's not the 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 be all end all. You're not a failure. It's a it's a situation that a lot of Canadians find themselves in. But uh, before making any action, again, I know I've been saying this a lot throughout this episode. Definitely, you know, talk to a, a financial planner so you can get some specific advice. They may have some other suggestions and, uh, you know, find some other, you know, streams of income that you may not have tapped into. Um, so definitely do that. But don't feel bad about making a bad real estate decision. People make them all the time. Real estate is a can be complex and it's not as, you know, flashy and easy as HDTV makes it seem like or all those YouTubers that are all about, you know, house hacking and whatever the hell. It's not it's not quite like that in the reality of things. So uh, not sure if I was really helpful with that. But I, you know, just letting you know, these things happen. Um, it's not the end of the world. There will be some sort of solution. And hopefully, you know, you will have learned through this experience what to do and what not to do next time. Okay, I'm going to leave it right there. So thank you so much for listening to this very long solo episode. I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks for, you know, supporting the podcast. I've gotten so many. You know what I love to hear is people telling me, hey, I just started listening the past few months. It's, It's really exciting for me because I've had this show this June. It will be eight years since I first launched this show. It is so exciting to hear that new people are still discovering the show. But for all of my loyal listeners who've been around for a long time, I also really love you. 
you. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast all of these years. It really, really does mean a lot to me. Um, I mean, I have a career, a new career in, in content creation and personal finance because of you. So I really appreciate it. So that is it for me. Thank you so much for listening to this special solo episode. A big shout out to my podcast editor, Matt Rideout, for editing this episode, which was a bit of a messy rant that you had to piece together. Um, and I will see you back here next Wednesday for a fresh new episode of the More Money Podcast. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.